spoken name. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I haven't dreamed of that moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I haven't dreamed of waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass more years than I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from, since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Ambien's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional materials. You wake up one morning after not reading a book since your school days and you decide to be a writer. With no good or bad writing to compare against your own, you just know how to write and anyone who tells you otherwise is wrong. Hell, maybe they're jealous of your natural ability to craft a masterpiece. After all, most people need to learn through a combination of books, courses, critical feedback and workshops. Not you though. It's not their fault. They don't realise your natural talent, but they soon will. How to Write Wrong is the new book by Amanda Steele. The book, which is an interactive story, gives the reader multiple options throughout its story. The book can be purchased from Amazon. Spoken Label. Thank you today for tuning in to Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up at the beginning of 2016 and as of recording has over 200 sessions in our archive. Although the podcast can be heard on Anchor, iTunes, Apple, Spotify, YouTube and literally 10 or 11 other networks. The full archive can be found at Spoken Label all one word Spoken Label dot Bandcamp dot com On Bandcamp it is set as pay what you want so you are entitled if you wish you can download it or stream it for nothing but if you throw me a couple of pennies my way it is always eternally grateful to help me maintain the operating costs and future running plots for this podcast. Enjoy. Spoken Label. Hi guys, Andy N, Spoken Label, back in the house and on Zoom again today. Got a nice local flavour today as well. And gentleman in question doesn't realise this. I don't think he does anyway. But um, we first, me and Amanda first heard of him when he was interviewed by a friend of ours and all FM fairly recently, Ruth O'Reilly. Because Andrew Shannon on the speaker doesn't realise that Ruth O'Reilly is among his best friends. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always it's great when you do when you do that. You, in this case, I've talked to Andrew today about his book before and after. Uh, I know what I've pretty well his story now because Ruth did such a good job chatting to him. <laughs> so I thought I'd just do much research. So Andrew, seriously, mate, introduce yourself to everybody. Tell them who you are, where you originally came from. And what led you on the creative path that eventually led to your novel? Excellent. Okay, yeah, that, that's quite a lot of information. So I'll try and uh, be brief to start off with, at least. Um, so my name is Andrew Shanahan. I am originally from Stoke-on-Trent, Stafford Way, uh, but moved up to Manchester and uh, was have lived all around Manchester, Withington, Northenden. Uh, and we've we've slowly moved further and further out of the city till we're in the rough end of Wilmslow, essentially. Um, and uh, so I have been a journalist probably for over two decades now, working for uh, mostly The Guardian, uh, Telegraph, Times, uh, Daily Mail, Don't Shout at Me, um, and, you know, whoever paid me, basically. And so along the way, I've started a couple of businesses um, which I've built up and sold. And um, the last one that I built up was a business called Man V Fat and it's uh, an organization that's supported men around the world we've helped over four million men now to to lose weight and to deal with their weight problems and kind of when I moved on from that business um, I, I went back to my what I love doing which is writing so I'm now a full-time fiction writer as absurd as that sounds. Fantastic. Now, also, like your debut novel came out beginning this year, before or after, which obviously suits goes in quite well into your man versus fat thing you used to work in as well. So, was it always deliberate when you started the novel off to be going into that territory, or did it did it change over time? Um, to be honest, I mean, you know, you'll often hear as a writer 
people talking about the that that sort of piece of advice write about what you know and I, I think that's really true you know it is very very valuable information to write about what you know clearly because it, it saves time doing the research if you know what you're talking about in the first place and it leads to that that authenticity that readers really want I think the other thing the other thing that's not mentioned as much is write about what you care about and you know you often know about what you care about because you spend more time dealing with it and thinking about it and talking about it and for me you know men and weight although it's such a weird thing to, to kind of care about and be involved in like it, it was it was really on my heart it was really a passion um, and it still is you know I, um, through doing Man Be Fat I spoke to and interviewed so many men who were desperate to lose weight or so many men who had lost weight and you know it just it I really care about that as a subject and I think that there's there's so much to say because it's not really um, a subject that other people touch possibly because it's you know a deeply unpleasant thing you know fat blokes who wants to write about that who wants to talk about that well it's not fashionable that's for sure so (laughs) it's it's you know it's only me and the niche (laughs) i agree with you completely with that so it was like it's such an unusual book where you what you've done with this book i said i have read it and i did when i'd read it i thought i've not seen a book going this way before so then was it always planned to have the book started off at the end of the world and everything went back, or did it? Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, the, so as I say, writing about what you care about really grew into this. So to give you a, your readers and your listeners uh, an overview of, of what the book's about, it, it's about a guy called Ben Stone who weighs 601 pounds. Um, I don't know what that is in kilograms. Probably about a lot. Two, two, <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah, so he's, he's a big bloke. And um, he hasn't been outside his flat. He lives on the fourth floor of a block of council flats uh, in North Manchester. And he hasn't been outside of his flat for nine years. And, you know, I, I spoke to a lot of guys who, they, they, they call them shut-ins, and that's the term for them. But, um, you know, these were guys who, either because of their size or because of their mental health, hadn't left the flat for a long, long time. And you, you quite often see, or they, they occasionally crop up on quite prurient TV programs where people are looking into their lives because it seems so ludicrous. You know, how could you maintain such a bulk and yet never leave your house? And it, I think people always sort of have this idea about who these people are and what's going on with them. And I just found their predicament and their situation so tragic and so fascinating in a morbid way um that I just thought it it was a really interesting dynamic for a story so Ben in the story weighs 601 pounds hasn't been outside for nine years and the poor bloke he's got diabetes and at the beginning of the story they're taking the front wall of his flat off so they can lower him to the floor with a crane and he um it's at that point that he's all wrapped up and ready to go but the world ends And for me, you know, I love apocalyptic sci-fi fiction and, you know, those sorts of thrillers. And it, but it was more about this idea about the the drama of this situation being in the flat and what happens to Ben and how he survives rather than what goes on outside. You know, that's definitely quite possibly a story for another day, but equally I just found his story the most interesting thing and I think you know often when you're reading sci-fi stories everything's sacrificed to the um, the concept you know you find these amazing high concept thrillers in sci-fi but actually you know I think you ask anyone what people want to hear stories about is people because you know we're people we're humans we want to hear what happens to the people. So it doesn't matter if it's, you know, in a galaxy far, far away a long, long time ago, you still want to know about the human stories connected to, the, to that situation. And, and so that's really what fascinated me um, with before and after and, and led me to ask all those questions about him as a character. Yeah, you took him on a heck of a journey, that's for sure. I know, I know he, like he's really, by the end of it, he's literally not just transformed the body, body he's almost transformed as a person as well. 
It was like, it was just an incredible story. And it was like, I don't want to give too much spoilers away, obviously. I'm not like that. I thought <laughs> good, but what made you come up with the very, she would say, frankly, shocking way of when feeding, she would say, um, when he actually removed the body parts? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was, you know, it's one of those things where once you'd established the, you know, the, the real, um, so one of the guys who I interviewed um, for the book uh, was a guy who was needed to lose his leg. So he lost his leg to diabetes because of his weight. And so once you'd sort of established that that was going to happen in the story, um, you start sort of asking as a, you know, someone interested in the drama of a situation, you start asking about, well, what would happen, um, you know, if, once you've said the, you know, the, the big what if is if the world was ending, how, how do you lose a leg if you're going to, if the world has ended and there is no, um, you know, 999 that you can call. And it is literally a case of life and death. It, you know, he, as you say, heavy spoiler warning, but as, as the book progresses, obviously his diabetes doesn't go away and he still needs to lose his leg. And he's left in this predicament of, well, if it's, um, you know, die or lose the leg, he chooses to lose the leg in, in the most direct way possible. Um, so, you know, I, I think part of that is because I, I quite like a bit of gore and I quite like a bit of, um, you know, blood and guts and all the rest of it. But equally, it just seemed like a very logical progression. I didn't want to shock anyone. I didn't want to, it to be there for shock value. It was a, a necessary thing that needed to happen. We knew at the beginning of the book he needs to lose his leg. Um, that doesn't change just because the world's ended. No, no, completely. It was like, it's got me when you got to that stage, obviously we're very spoiler, spoiler heavy here. When you, when he did that bit, I was just sat there thinking, and I know Amanda's the same, she said it. We both said this would be read at the same time. And it was like, I, just turned, I said, I don't believe that Andrew's just gone and done that. <laughs> like, it, <laughs> it was just a case for sat there thinking, oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> That's what I got. Oh. So obviously, I said it was, um, that was obviously like you were, that was obviously in your thoughts straight from the beginning of the book, then, mate, wasn't it? It sounded like it was like that shocking scene, obviously, was, it was an important part of the book. And it was obviously struck me, you told me then. Like uh, you'd been planned all along that minute. It wasn't the case that they had this idea that we through, was it really? No, no, no. It was, it, it, it was sort of central to the book from the beginning. Um, <laughs> the thing that always sticks with me from that scene is the fact that um, he uses a Jodrell Bank tea towel um, to, to help with the clear up. And yeah, I remember. It's something that probably, you know, a good 60, 70% of Manchester kitchens would probably have somewhere. And I just love that detail of it, you know, having that um, something so obvious, you know, for, for me to have around. Oh, it always yeah. just makes me laugh a little bit. Oh, completely. That one is just, it was so blackened. If people read the reviews in your book, that, that seems to come up automatically almost straight away, doesn't it? Like, I mean, yeah. did you anticipate the reaction you'd get to that scene when, you, when the book first um, came out? Do you know what? The, um, I think the thing you know, obviously pe people are entitled to their opinions always about whatever you write. As soon as you write something, it, it doesn't belong to you. You know, you can comment on it the same as anyone else, but it's everyone else's right to comment on it too. The two things that, that sometimes bug me about comments that people make about the book, one is that, so across the course of, so the, the, the dramatic situation that Ben is in is that from the start of the book, the world has ended. He is stuck in his flat physically and psychologically as well largely but he um he doesn't have any food in his flat because he's been running down the cupboards before he goes to hospital um and he has literally nothing to eat and people occasionally say well how can he survive for so long um with you know eating nothing and the fact is is that i i did <laughs> like so much research about how possible that was and you know, the, the current world records for, for those sorts of things about, you know, um, medical fasts and things like that. So um, I'm always like wanting to, that's the one thing I want to go back to people on and go, yes, it is entirely possible for someone of that weight to last as long as he does without eating. Uh, and the other one is the, um, around the scene with, uh, let's, uh, when he loses his leg, let's say. And again, that was, 
pretty scrupulously. And I, you know, having said, I, I like a bit of blood in the story. I like it from a reader's point of view. I'm pretty um, delicate stomach, so I don't like <laughs> finding out about these things. But um, I've got a couple of friends who are doctors and a couple of friends who are vets, and they took me through um, blood by blood and gristle by gristle what happens during an amputation. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that's that's nicely accurate as well. Oh wow! Oh yeah, completely <laughs> agree with that one. It was like uh, yeah. Well, should we just, we'll just, we'll just move on because obviously, like I said, it's happening. It's not going to be upset stomach otherwise. And I've, I've got, we've got a lot of work to do tomorrow. Works. <laughs> I want to ask you next, obviously, about the other major character in the book as well. That is a his pet dog. Yeah. Now, tell us about what made you want to have a pet dog. Well, again, you know, um, I think the. So the dog that he has is brown. He's a Manchester Terrier. Not a lot of people know about Manchester Terriers, which surprised me a little bit, but um, they are fundamentally the greatest dog on earth, not only because they're from Manchester, but they're just, they're such a smart, loyal, clever dog. They're just awesome. I wish more people knew about Manchester Terriers. It's sort of, uh, you know. They're not a common, that's common to breed nowadays. That's for sure. Manchester anyway, certainly. Yeah. No, exactly. And they, they used to be very common, obviously, in Manchester and Liverpool, actually, as well, because they were ratting dogs. And so what would happen is that a ratter would take a Manchester Terrier into the hold of ships. Um, so, you know, as they came back, they would. Um, and because the Manchester Terriers worked so closely with the ratter, they, they often have this very, very close relationship with, with a human. Um, they're very loyal, very smart. Um, and they're, they're phenomenal hunters for rats and for, um, you know, rabbits, that sort of thing. And anyway, so for me, it was kind of, um, so in, within the, the context of the book, Ben is given a dog by his mum who is dying. And he, he often ponders about why she gave him this dog as she was dying. And she sort of, Brown the dog becomes a bit more like a, a sort of lasting symbol of his mum's love and his, you know, how she feels about him in, in, in canine form. Um, and she's just, I think, you know, when, when I was writing the book, what I really wanted to write about was hopelessness and despair and about being in those situations and feeling those things and, you know, being at the end of everything and for me what I really wanted to put in there was about sources of hope and because you know I think not to get too globally conscious about everything but I think you know there's so many people who feel like that at the moment and who suffer from anxiety and depression and and just this sort of sense of the world's going to hell in a handbasket sort of thing um and not necessarily knowing where their hope comes from and for me the book was largely about suggesting those routes to hope that you know some might be relevant to me some might not be relevant to other people but you know animals faith music friendship relationships yeah, um, no, you know, just, yeah just sort of positing those things and sort of <sighs> hoping that readers can see that you know wherever they are and however bleak things may be that there are those sources of hope there whether or not you're connecting with them at this point is not necessarily um i don't know but i hope that people see that those things are out there yeah i think brown is still on the soul show for me actually the character <laughs> nothing against ben as a character ben was really engaging no. but brown i think it's because I've had one dog all my life when I grew up, and that dog meant everything to me, my family. And that's why I know yeah. dogs are out and they're very attached to your owners. And it was, it really bought something when he's put, obviously, Brownie went out on every certain, I'm not going to spoil it, to be careful and spoilers, but when he went out on missions for Ben, basically, he went, you're a whole, you're out, I'm thinking, come on, don't kill him, don't kill him, don't let a zombie use him. That's fine. No, yeah. no, it was, it was beautifully told that bit. So, oh, so, thanks. Well, what, I really appreciate that. What I'm interested in the design of the book as well is obviously we've got the bob and biscuits at the front of the book. Was that always yeah. the plan to have that on the front cover? Was it that? Was it or that come afterwards? Well, I'm very lucky that I've I've worked with a designer called Yolanda Yo, um, which is 
fundamentally one of the greatest names of anyone ever. Um, and she has um, worked with me on pretty much every project I've ever done. And we, she, so it was obvious that she was going to design the book cover for mm. me. And we were talking about kind of, you know, we tried all sorts of different, because one of the big things about, you know, um, when you're designing a book cover is about how so many people will tell you it has to fit in genre. So you should be able to, in theory, you should be able to look at the front cover of a book and go, you know, I know this is an action thriller. I know this is, you know, James Patterson ripoff. I know that this is a Harlan Coben style book. And we tried all of them and they just felt so pastiche and naff um, when we were doing it for, for this book that because ultimately we didn't feel like it fit perfectly in a post-apocalyptic fiction category, which broadly it does. Um, but also it's, it's a lot about other things. It's about weight. It's about hope. It's about, you know, <laughs> dogs. Yeah, um, social commentary in all kinds of ways. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, in exactly. the zombie book case, it's very, very different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you had, like, you know, a, a leering, lurching zombie on the front cover, it, we felt that it, even though that would have said, look, this is more post-apocalyptic fiction, we felt that it, it massively sold the book short. So we just, we went full on symbolic and the, the biscuit, the bourbon biscuit is just, it's a design classic. You know, everyone knows it. Everyone and, and also, funnily enough, I, I feel subsequently that actually it cashes in on a little bit of um, food marketing psychology, which is that we're, we're primed to respond to seeing high fat foods. And we've been primed by you know, food com companies over generations, like over the last 50, 60 years to start salivating and thinking, oh, yeah, I'll check that out. Um, when we see an ice cream, a biscuit, you know, a burger, those sorts of things. Um, and so <laughs> in a funny way, I think having the bourbon on the front cover has been pretty effective, really, because I think regardless of whether people go, oh, yeah, that's a sci-fi book, which obviously they don't. Um, they go, oh, yeah, biscuits are quite like biscuits. I noticed that I was looking at Vina and I thought, oh, I love bourbon biscuits. I'm not allowed them, so I'm diabetic as well. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why, but now I'm getting completely. That's great. It's a great idea for that one, certainly. So, now, I've only got a couple of things I need to ask you today, anyway. So, but, um, obviously, I know to you, Tom, before, like, the book was actually finished last October, wasn't it? So, yeah. so like, it was like, and you told you, was it for was it March, what? No, June to October, you wrote it over that four month period, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think. It was probably, I think I started in July, ended, and then finished the third draft in October. So in between, <clears throat> in between July and October, it had gone through three drafts. Yeah, well, that's pretty good going, that, isn't it, over that period of time. So did you find, because yeah. obviously I know Amanda, Amanda, when she does novels, it takes her five, five six months around to go for, go for four drafts on a novel. So did you find with this one, then, was it quite, obviously, when you got your teeth into it, it obviously flowed through really quickly, didn't it, so... Yeah, um, to be honest, it, it really did flow very quickly. I mean, um, the book's probably about 90,000 words long, so it's not like the longest book in the world. But um, once I'd written the first draft, the first draft actually wasn't wildly different to, to how it finished up, but the, um, it was very much the uh, last... Um, so I think it was about the last third of the book ended very, very differently in the first draft. Oh, did it right. Um, and it, it, it kind of went off in this um, much more typical action uh, zombie direction. And reading it back, um, so my sort of beta readers and my uh, children and uh, my wife, and we all just sort of read it and went, yeah, that's bollocks. <laughs> um, <laughs> so after... Honestly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, well, I mean, they're great because obviously they, they don't pull their punches because they just think I'm a loser. Um, <laughs> so it was, um, it was really obvious that that didn't work, uh, but that it was also really obvious that the first two-thirds really was interesting and had something that you wanted to learn more about. And so then the last rewriting the last third was very much just, oh, okay, it needs to go in this direction. And it kind of... It, 
yeah, it was it was a joy to write. Really, it wasn't wasn't difficult at all actually. Yeah, so hold them. So obviously, since then, have you got? Is it too early to mention what's going next or anything? Have you or have you got have you got, so, another, have you got another book on the go at the moment? Have you? Yeah. So I mean, you know. Um, I've been very, very lucky that it's been so well received and, you know, it's, it's had like over a thousand different reviewers now and, and sure, they've really got going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, from a, you know, it's an indie, an indie published book, so it's self-published um, and it's sold incredibly well. So I'm, I'm, you know, can't complain in any way, shape or form, but I think the, um, the thing that I'm really proud of and really pleased with is that people are really engaging with it as a, um, a story and you know they really seem to have quite a few emails off people who feel that it's it's made a significant difference for them or that it's it's sort of I think hit them in the way that I hoped it would um so so that's been really really gratifying and also subsequently because uh, of that we've, I've had a lot of people ask me if I'd write a sequel um and I kind of never really anticipated it becoming like a, a big long series but um, I feel like uh, at some point I need to return to the story and and just kind of give an update of of where they are and what's happening in their world because people really love them as, as characters and that's that's really gratifying. The but the no so the next book so I'm, I'm I am writing another book now, um, which is not going to be in their world. It's completely different. It's um, it's a book about the, the race for Mars in the 2030s. Ooh, cool. No, no, <laughs> no, no, cool. Like I said, I'm in, you know, already, I know people don't know, it's Andrew's been researching me. And I've got to, like, you don't know Andrew at the moment, so I've got an album coming out on an, an experimental label show on Mars. <laughs> oh, wow, cool. Yeah, so I love, I love doing all this space stuff on this great moment. So that's why. But take it, have you always, have you always and obviously, I'm not going to ask you a big detail about the novel. But is it a Mars has been interest you has it that planet or? Um, I, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I'm not the sort. I'm not the um, you know Andy Weir type who could write a very detailed, fact-filled, truth-filled, or you know, true to to fact uh, book about Mars missions. I, that's that's not me. Um, but I, I find like it's it's a really fascinating because it's going to be, you know. Get used to it. Mars is going to be everywhere for the next decade because it is going to be a thing in the 2030s. I, I would um, stake my non-existent reputation on it. Um, but the, you know, yeah, <laughs> I think that. And so for me, what it allows you to do, especially writing a little bit further into the future, is to talk about where the world is now and extrapolate a little bit about some of the you know, the asinine policies and the places that we've got to in terms of Brexit and populism in politics um, and just take it in a slightly different direction. So there's, I, I won't give anything away other than to say there's a huge amount of psychedelic drugs in my book. Good man, good man. <laughs> <laughs> how long have you, I'm saying that, how long have you been writing the book for them so far? Have you, have you been into it for a few months, this book, have you had the second one? Um, yeah, so this one, I think I've been writing for about a month now, about 25,000 words into it. I'm hoping to have a rough first draft done before Christmas. Oh, yeah. Um, then, then then get yeah. out, maybe get out next year at some point, and fingers crossed, isn't it? So. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to, um, my, my personal ambition is to try and get it out um, on January the 31st. It's probably a little bit ambitious, but certainly sort of February time next year, I would like to think that it will be in a place where it's finished and I'm starting to, to figure out how to get it out there. Oh, yeah, definitely. Fingers crossed you now. We'll be in touch about that name of design, definitely, so with that one. Awesome. Now, Thanks, Andy. The last thing I want to ask you about today was, and Amanda asked me to ask you about this as well, was if anybody goes into your website at the moment, you've got an option here where you can ask, you can, you can get people, you can ring people up or speak to people on the phone, can't you? I read out extracts of your before and after. Yeah. Where did the idea for this come from? 
<laughs> it's unorthodox, that's for sure. <laughs> it's certainly unorthodox. I mean, unorthodox, I like unorthodox, but I mean, as you can tell from our chat tonight, I clearly love the sound of my own voice. And <laughs> You're such a quiet, feel shy very person. Happy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> feel, feel very happy inflicting it on other people. And um, it was because when the book came out, so, you know, the, the other great irony, of course, about Before and After is that it's a book largely about being trapped at home while a pandemic rages outside. Um, and who knew 2020 was going to be all about that? <laughs> so, it's just um, the timing on it is just impeccable. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, you could have planned it better. <laughs> well, a friend of mine said, um, I think your viral marketing campaign's gone a bit far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, think it's, it's perfect being that real. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've had to be really careful about how to talk about the book and how to market the book, because clearly, you know, I have to be sympathetic to the fact that although I could jump up and down and go, you know, do you know what, this is a book about being trapped at home during a pandemic. I have to also be sensitive to the fact that people have died um, and are dying of COVID and that, you can't just be sort of surfing off the back of that going, look at me, I was lucky enough to publish something about this at the beginning of the year, because clearly that's just reprehensible and disgusting. So I've, I've tried to just be more sensitive about it than that. But the, um, so one of the things that I was really looking forward to and I'd had a few offers to do was to do some readings for the book in, with groups when it came out. And clearly, you know, from the book coming out in January to kind of end of February, it was abundantly clear that that was just not going to happen in 2020. And I thought, well, do you know what? Like the whole point about me reading it to people is just so that it, I can kind of talk to people about it and get, um, you know, get in their ear holes about it a bit. And um, I, I'm perfectly happy phoning people up and reading to them. So I think I've done about 100 readings with people now. Wow. Um, all around the world, like, you know, genuinely uh, America, Australia, uh, some different European countries, and then loads in England. But it's been it's been really, really interesting because some people signed up. So Hot Bitch featured it and um, the B3TA newsletter, Beta newsletter featured it as a story. And, and so I had lots of people who genuinely hadn't heard anything about me or about the book just sign up going, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's a laugh for a lunchtime. And so I'd phone them up, do a 15 minute reading and then just chat to them. And I met some really, really fascinating people through doing that. Um, and it was, I, I, I will always do that. I think it's, I love doing it. Oh yeah, completely. It's, it's, it's a really interesting idea. Well, it's not something like it's, what well, I know it's like it's anyway, you can do it for a website called that. So and I can, how do you find out about that website then? Was that an accident that was it to book it through? Um, what well, the you can book me one? Yeah, you can book me one. Yeah, yeah. So um, the, I mean, if if uh, any of your listeners <laughs> want to book in for it, I'm more than happy to do it for them as well. Um, so if you just go to my website, which is helloshan.co.uk, um, you should be able to find a link on there that, that links directly to it. But I think I've used it for something else for booking um, things on. And it's great because you can just stick your calendar on there and, and people just book in a, a time slot. And so a lot of the time it was people, you know, they're on their lunch hour and just fancied something different. So one guy went out and walked every day during his lunch. And so I was speaking to him as he walked. Uh, one woman, I'm almost certain, was uh, on the toilet while I was reading to her. Um, so, you know, I, ho I hope I used the passage of that particular um, episode. Brilliant. <laughs> oh, no, you said it's one way of getting to meet people that way, that's for sure. I'm sure <laughs> oh, blimey. me. Right. Um, obviously, if people want to find you, obviously, um, your website, you've mentioned your website and how you, you can book me as well. I know you're on Twitter, 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 Twitter as yeah. uh, on the handle Nervous Crying as well. So, is yeah. there any more web, any more pages we should be referring people to as well, of yours? Yeah, um, I think I'm going to rip it all up and start again. But anyway, so yeah, the, where I'm most frequently found is on Twitter at Nervous Crying. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at Shan is Writing and Facebook at Shan is Writing. Um, primarily, I think probably the easiest thing to do is if people go to my uh, helloshan.co.uk website, they can find me and whichever social profiles I'm active on at the moment. I don't know about you guys, but I'm 
I'm getting increasingly sick of social media and just thinking about ditching the whole lot of it. I, I treat it a lot based on the time, don't you? I don't tend to really, don't tend to really upset myself too much over it. So that's why I just do more podcasting and chat to people. <laughs> that stops me yeah. worrying about it. Then, then yeah. uh, mention what I'm going to mention. Then I'll just just go play music all day long, or talk, <laughs> or drive them under crackers normally. So it's having a lot. Is it's I think the way the world's gone. You know yourself. It's in strange times at the moment, and. Who knows how long it's going to last for, basically. So, mm. like I, said, I mean, it's... I like the community aspect of it. It's just I also find that I find that um, I end up engaging in conversations that I don't want to engage in. I also find that it's very, it's just too adept at uh, inciting me to anguish and, and anger, and yeah. I, I just don't don't think that's healthy for me. I'd rather just be, you know, anytime that I'm on the computer, I'd rather be, you know writing something for people and if if they dig it and want to share it great if if not you know i don't think i need to be involved in discussions about bloody trump and oh, Boris trump. i keep off it i keep off it as yeah. much as i can because like obviously yeah. you know, the job i do i can't really go into the political side yeah, exactly yeah. but um i had some occasionally i've seen put in comments about people political policy banging head on table because <laughs> i was thinking yeah oh, i get fed up with it frequently don't you do so and that's yeah. why it's like, I'm glad in our cases, I hear truth on, I'm glad we got off TV. Because if we're a television, I'd be ripping my hair out at the moment. <laughs> yeah, so well, you just completely ditched the TV in, in time? I got, I got rid of about four years ago on TV, and the man does not have one even longer than that. So we, we watch stuff on Amazon and Amazon Prime and Netflix and other bits and pieces. But we won't go around. I'm glad we got off the TV option nowadays. Generally don't. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's, that's really good. I think it's... You know, I think increasingly these things we need to talk about more and, and have this sort of idea about what is a healthy media consumption. Because I think we've been too passive about, oh, great, it's there, let's take it. You know, and it's it's like, you know, idiots when you go to a party and there's, you know, you're just sort of binging on everything that's there. And it's, it's ultimately you do have to learn some discernment. And maybe other people have learned this far sooner and far better than me, but I feel like I've just been kind of properly still binging about it or rather than going, do you know what? Maybe I, I don't have to be on this platform. Maybe that's not healthy. And I think that from a writer's point of view, it's far too easy to tell yourself that that's how you connect with a readership when actually it's bullshit because the way that you connect with a readership is by writing good things. And yeah. if you can do that and put things out, then, you know, people read it and tell other people about it. And that's that's how you build an, an audience. Yeah, no, I agree with completely with it. So I found a lot of the last thing I want to touch about today as well is um, have you found yourself, have you used it as a ch chance to try out different forms of writing that you haven't done before or different approaches even? Well, when I, in, in what sense? Yeah, yeah. over lockdown, because like I've time a poet, yeah. Like as I've used this chance to try and learn how to master doing like haikus and tankers and other things like that and I've never done them before so it's like have you been yeah. like trying out different different approaches you're right and looking at things in different ways do you know what I think for me um during the pandemic writing has been a really positive mental health experience because it broadly hasn't changed at all you know I mean my my working situation has always been that I, I write in a shed at the bottom of our garden um, and that hasn't, that hasn't changed, you know, I still, still do that. Um, and for me, you know, so therefore I've tried to just keep to, as if that, that's just normal, you know, and I think that having those little, uh, rituals and those little moments that haven't been affected by, um, the pandemic are, are massively important to all of us because it's just normality, isn't it? And I think we're all having to cope with so much new normal um, that those bits that are old normal just feel welcome and reassuring. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's a great way to finish it off today, so Andrew. <laughs> well, that's a, I'll put all the details up for everybody, so it's well worth checking out. It's been a pleasure reading and chatting today. Now, hang around, Andrew. I need to quit early off, Mike. Thank you for today. And everyone, look at part two of the podcast, because Andrew's going to send it over to me the MP3 of this book. I'm going to put the first 10 minutes or so, let you listen to it. So it's actually awesome. fascinating and innovative stuff. That's for sure. So Thanks take care, so much, guys. Andy.
It's been a great fun today. Thank you again, Andy. Take care, guys and girls. I'll see you on Andy and Sandy next. I'll see you all soon. Spoke on me. Hello, my name's Andrew Shanahan, and I wrote a book called Before and After, which was released in January 2020. It tells the story of Ben Stone, who is £601 and is, uh, for the last nine years has been a shut-in in his flat in Manchester. And um, just as he's being removed from the flat because he needs to be taken to hospital to have his leg amputated, uh, the world ends. And it's a story all about him and what he learns post the end of the world. So um, I'm going to read the first chapter. I hope you enjoy it. Tuesday, 4th of August, 2020, 601 pounds, 273 kilograms. The fireman who falls to his death is Carl, and the one who kicks him out of the window is Carl. It seems like such a pointless thing to remember, but when the two firemen first arrive at my flat, Carl makes a big thing about him being Carl with a C, and his colleague being Carl with a K. It would be more accurate to say Carl with a C is the one who compulsively chips in gags and catchphrases, and Carl with a K is the one who mostly works in a tight-jawed silence. It's the sort of bobbins you say when there's very little that needs to be said and silence is awkward. Everyone who has been through the flat that morning has their own versions of this mouth noise. Mostly it consists of a series of introductions and overly cheerful explanations. Hi Ben, I'm Josie, I'm the lead bariatric nurse and I'll be helping to move you and making sure you're comfortable until we get to the hospital. Hi Ben, I'm Dr Ash and I'm responsible for making sure you're all fit and healthy for the big move. Hi Ben, I'm Lloyd and I'm one of the diabetes nurses that will be getting you safely out of your flat and into the ambulance. There are more. I tune them out after a bit. The first name stuff is supposed to be reassuring and make me feel empowered. They all call me Ben once they've established that I'm happy to be referred to that way. Ultimately, it makes it all seem like we're a bunch of mates who get together occasionally to lift a £601 man out of the front wall of his home with a crane. All standard stuff. Very normal. Another of the inanities is that they all individually ask me to repeat and confirm what it is that's being done. So I tell them all repeatedly that I'm having my leg amputated. And once that is established, then we confirm which leg it is. They all ask me to go through this process, even though Dr Ash has already drawn on my right leg and signed his initials. It's surreal to watch him do it and barely feel a thing, thanks to the nerve damage from the diabetes. Even without the messy FA scrawled on my leg, I hope it would be apparent to anyone even vaguely medically trained which one is the poorly leg. If the nasty sunburn hue, drifts of peeling white skin and mottled purple and black patches don't give it away, then the four-inch scab on the top of my foot should clinch it. So, you're having your right lower leg amputated, is that correct? That is correct. And you've had the process of what's happening to you today explained? Yes, at least a thousand times. And do you have any questions? Yes. How did I get to this position? What went wrong? Who will care for Brown? Why can't I stop thinking about eating? Am I worth saving? No, it's all clear. Thank you. The council workmen arrive punctually slightly before 7am. There are four men dressed in black and grey multi-pocketed trousers, paint-spattered work boots and polo shirts with the Housing Association logo printed on them. They work purposefully with a minimum of equipment to remove the front wall of my flat and the sidings to the balcony, revealing an extended view over the surrounding buildings, the hills and the distant city that I can see from my bed if I sit up straight. One of the first things they do when they arrive is to fix a large plastic sheet diagonally across the living room cocooning me in a bright blank space that sucks and billows in the gentle breeze like a diaphragm. In theory, this is to protect me from the brick and plaster dust as they take down the wall, but aside from a dry taste to the air and an early fit of sneezing, there isn't much disturbance. I ask if they want a brew from behind the, my curtain, but a voice beyond the veil says they've brought flasks with them. I do wonder whether the sheet just makes the whole thing less awkward for them. There is a gap in the sheeting next to the wall where I can see the men as they carry large yellow builder's buckets of bricks and the patio doors out of the lounge, down the hall and out of the front door of the flat. I watch them as they trudge back through the flat, sweat seeping through their shirts as they work in the early heat. The workers don't meet my eye and seem to feel it is easier to focus on their buckets or the seams of their gloves as they walk past. The entire project only takes them about an hour, including removing the screen, and throughout that time they barely speak a word. The oldest of the four men sidles 
over to my bed and asks for a signature on a battered clipboard as the rest of his team get their tools together. I thank them for the new view and sign whatever it is he passes to me. Maybe he just wants an autograph. There is a glorious half hour of quiet before the medics and the firemen arrive. I check my packing again and eat breakfast. Hot sweet tea with oat milk and four sugars and six rounds of toast, margarine and jam. After breakfast, I reflexively open my last packet of bourbons and slowly feed them into my mouth until they are all gone. I assure myself that this isn't compulsive eating. The deadline of when I have to stop eating and drinking before the surgery is looming and I want to make sure I'm not going to go hungry. Plus, I've done well on my diet recently so I've earned a bit of a treat to calm my nerves. I watch the steam curl from the top of my mug and wonder what mum would have made of it all. I know. She would have thought it was exciting. She loved having people over to the flat. When the team arrive, there are four from the hospital, three nurses and one doctor, plus two members of the fire brigade. On Middleton Road outside and on the roof of my building, there are another five members of the fire brigade. They are liaising with the crane operator and a further two workmen who are using a cherry picker, a heavy-duty elevated working platform that has a cage at the top for someone to drive and move the boom arm. I nearly have a heart attack when I first see a fireman apparently floating past the window outside my flat. I calm myself down. Too much effort and money has been spent for me to cark it now. The multi-agency movement strategy was painstakingly explained to me when it became apparent that I needed the amputation. For years, the Housing Association has been aware of my living situation and tried to coax me out of the flat and into another property. They carefully explained the health and safety risks of having a super-obese man in a top-floor flat. They said that after a risk assessment, they no longer felt it was safe for me to use the building's ancient lift, which would need upgrading if it was ever to carry me safely. They dropped hints about legal action, but they never quite got around to evicting me. Then type 2 diabetes succeeded where the persuasive powers of housing officers had failed. Essentially, there are three steps to the movement plan. Get me out of bed, get me out of the flat, and get me to hospital. The first challenge is that the medical staff and firemen have to get me onto something called a bariatric med sled. This mostly involves rolling me from side to side on my bed and gradually sliding a plastic board with handholds underneath me. As the heat is stifling, I've been advised to wear just underwear, and so the first mortification of the day, but by no means the last, is lying mostly naked in bed, being pushed back and forth by the team like they're working dough. It doesn't help that as they jostle me, I can't stop a small fart from creeping out, which has just enough of a rasp that it was very obviously from me. I'm so sorry, it's the moving and the nerves, I explain, trying not to make eye contact with anyone. Don't worry, Ben, it's perfectly natural. Nurses get it all the time, says Lloyd. That's why they pay them so much, says Carl, causing Carl to snigger. When you're my size, you get used to everything having the prefix bariatric. It's not a toilet, it's a bariatric commode. It's not a bed, it's a bariatric sleeping platform. I've even got bariatric shoes, although I don't think I've ever worn them. Say all the bad things you like about being a shut-in, but it does save you money on shoes. Bariatric is one of those words that only medics and insurance companies use, and as far as I can tell, it mostly means fat in a costly and complicated way. Once I'm finally on the bariatric sled, I'm secured in place to prevent me from slipping. I experience a sting of vertigo as the foot of the bed is lowered, and the whole team carefully move me onto the floor where another stiff plastic movement board is waiting. I suddenly have a vivid memory of seeing an adult at a seventh birthday party holding a plate with an untouched jelly vertically over the bin. I remember watching the jelly grip at first, then slowly slip and fall into the bin. I remember the adult had caught me watching and smiled at me, and I recoiled with embarrassment. I tried to roll my body to find a comfortable position on the hard floor, but I can only move an inch and I am essentially immobilised. The movement board is again strapped up to prevent the med sled itself from moving about on top of it. The final act is to hook the entire sausage roll to the crane outside, which will very carefully perform the act of taking my weight and lifting me into the air. The movement board has a steadying line attached to the cherry picker, but this won't actually be taking any of the weight, it'll just steady my horizontal movement and ensure that I don't swing out of the flat like a wrecking ball and demolish a nearby building. No one says that is a concern, but I get the distinct impression that it's been risk assessed. The plan is then to manoeuvre me out of the flat and lower me extremely slowly over the 44 feet to the ground and onto a bariatric paramedic trolley. I will be winched into the specialist bariatric ambulance and taken to hospital. 
I've been told they're expecting a crowd and have erected barriers to keep people at a safe distance and to protect my dignity. In this part of North Manchester, a crowd would gather just to marvel at a crane, so the idea of some fat, shut-in weirdo suspended from a crane will probably close schools and factories for miles around. I'm bracing for a commemorative issue of the local paper. And then, for the first time since I was 16, I'll be outside the flat. A lot must have changed in nine years. I can look around and see what lies beyond the corner of the road. I'll be able to see the other third of the advertising billboard just before the roundabout that is currently obscured by flats. I can turn and look back at Ellis Tower and see where I've been for nearly a decade. The thought of seeing my flat from the outside makes me feel like I'm falling into a deep crevice in the earth. Plunging into the core, I feel dizzy and my breathing gets shallow. One of the nurses monitoring my heart rate and blood pressure asks if I am okay. I lie and nod. Once I'm out, the council workers will come back in and fix a tarpaulin across the missing wall to ensure that my flat isn't open to the elements. Not that rain is a concern currently. It hasn't rained in 74 days now, and across the country there are widespread drought warnings in place. The tabloids have stopped declaring it Britain's record-breaking summer and started questioning whether the endless heatwave might be indicative of a wider problem. The heat has even been blamed for the sporadic rioting we had in June and July. I'll probably be begging them to leave the wall off rather than boxing me in again. This is, of course, dependent on whether they'll even let me return to my flat. My surgeon has said that a creeping amputation is a distinct possibility, so I might need to have further operations before they can even discuss whether I could go home. Recently, I've also found out there are additional complications, which I've been trying hard not to think about. Weirdly, the thought of dying worries me far less than the gnawing tension of being away from the flat. The biggest challenge of the first stage has been the missing wall and working at height, which means that the team have had to wear safety harnesses tethered to the cherry picker and secure spots in the flat. There are a lot of excuse-me's, jingling of harnesses and ducking under straps. Carl says it feels like they're doing a maypole dance. By now, everyone has realised that you don't have to react to what Carl is saying, so no one laughs and Carl seems fine. As they click the final straps across my chest shut, I feel a panic mounting like a dark wave and consider asking for the sedative which I've been offered earlier. But as tempting as oblivion seems, my anxiety insists that I have to be in a state of pin-drop alertness or an unspecified calamity will occur. It isn't just being pinned down that makes me nervous. It's the sheer enormity of the moment. The air from outside the window smells vivid and different. I feel supernaturally attuned to each second and the new sensation that it brings. Even familiar feelings like the burning friction from the four deep boils that sit on the underside of my belly seem more real in that moment. I hear one of the team call on a radio for the crane to start lowering the chains into position. I gulp and look at the crucifix on the wall. Was I worth all of this effort? Two phones ring simultaneously and there is a burst of static from a radio and a garbled message that I can't hear. After a few seconds, more phones ring and phone notifications ping. There is a buzz of strangely intense activity, the sounds of people packing equipment and leaving, and then a mumbled explanation. Um, ben, we need to get to... Um, we, we, we won't be long. Then nothing happens for two hours. Spoken, mate.